How do you identify yourself when you go out in public and you introduce yourself to others? What is the first thing that comes out of your mouth? How you view yourself and how you identify tells people a lot about who you are and what you value. It also will dictate how you live your life in this world. This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series in the book of Jude. And if the Lord wills, over the next couple of months, we will be spending some time in the the small and often forgotten book. And it is a, a book that is made up of only 25 verses, but is extremely important because it provides assurance to God's people. And it also provides an exhortation to Christians to contend for the faith in the end times. And that is the time from Jesus' ascension until his second coming. And in a sense, this book can be seen as an exposition of PK's, a section of PK's sermon from last week. Specifically, Matthew seven fifteen through 20, where Jesus warns us of false prophets who would come. And he warns us that they would be coming. He tells us how to identify them and what to do. So this book is an important book for us today. And this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at four verses which make up the greeting, the greeting, a prayer, and a reason for the book. And it is my hope that we would have attentive hearts to listen to everything that Jude wants us to know about what it means to be a Christian and how we are to live as we wait for the Lord's return. And if you're taking notes this morning, our main point is this. Christian, you have been called to contend for the faith. You have been called to contend for the faith. And I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Jude. And it is a small book And it is the second to last book in the Bible. So if you just go to the end, go to Revelation, go to the book prior to that one. And we will be reading the first four verses. Jude 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Like the other epistles in the New Testament, Jude begins his epistle with the standard greeting. He identifies who the sender is. He identifies the recipients. And then he includes a short prayer in verse 2. Now, if you're like me, you probably skim through the basic information when you receive a letter in the mail. 
you may skip through the sender and you jump straight into what's important, the body of the letter. I, for one, uh, when I was working in my previous job, I was working limited hours and I was looking forward to seeing, okay, how much money am I going to get paid this week because I'm going to need that in order to kind of plan my budget and all of that. And I'd open up the envelope. I'd kind of skip through the, the sender. I'd skip through the address and I'd get to the, how many hours am I going to get compensated for? Because that's what's most important. Well, we shouldn't do that when we come to epistles in the Bible. And we live, we live in a culture that teaches us that this is how we should kind of read things. We should kind of skip the, the, the stuff that's not too important or appears not to be too important and just jump to the, to the meat of things. But if we do this, we can miss a lot of important uh, details that God has for us in his word. So we don't want to do that. We want to take our time and, and look at everything that is written in God's word because it is profitable for us. So this morning, we're going to begin with our first point, And there's only two points this morning. Our first point is this, the Christian's call, the Christian's call. Jude begins his letter by writing, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, this may seem like an insignificant introduction, but it's not. The details are are quite remarkable, and in order to understand them, we have to remember a few things. We are told that Jude wrote this letter, and Jude is none other than Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, Jude doesn't tell us explicitly that he's Jesus' brother, But we know that he's Jesus' brother because he tells us that he is the brother of James. And James was also the half-brother of Jesus. And in, in Jude's time, mentioning the name of James was something that identified James because many people knew who James was. James was... Uh, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And James was also known for writing his epistle, the epistle of James. Now, in Mark 6 and and Matthew 13, both James and Jude are listed as brothers of Jesus. And what's interesting about this is how Jude describes himself in relation to Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say, Jude, a brother of Jesus. Instead, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, this description is incredible because Jude didn't always describe himself this way. As a matter of fact, there was a time in Jude's life when he didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And you can read that in in John chapter 7. And it even got to the point where Jude and his family thought that Jesus was crazy. Mark 3.21 Now, what would make a man go from denying Jesus to identifying himself as, not as Jesus' brother, but as Jesus' servant? Well, the answer to that question is what has led countless people to do the same thing, and that is the work of Christ. That is, Jesus' life, his death, 
and resurrection. This is what flips people's worlds upside down. Jesus is the loving Savior who came into this world to live the life that we were supposed to live but didn't, and then gave his life as a sacrifice, paying the death that we deserve to pay with our life for our sins. This Jesus came preaching the good news of the gospel, offering forgiveness of sins. And when Jesus offered up his life, then was buried and then resurrected three days later, this is what transformed Jude's life and where he came to find his new identity. We find in our passage that one of the aspects of our call has to do with our identity. It has to do with our identity. And there in chapter, in verse 1, the verse tells us a lot about Jude, but it also teaches us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. Jude's identification as a servant and not a brother of Jesus teaches us how we as Christians ought to see ourselves in relation to Jesus. And that is, we ought to see ourselves as servants. One of the things that we must make sure that we understand is that we are not Jesus' Lord, and He is not our servant. Instead, Jesus is our Lord, and we are His servants. We mustn't mix that up, because a lot of people do that and live that way. They live as if Jesus is there to simply provide all of one's needs and desires and they treat him like a genie, as if that's what he's there for, as a bellboy. But that is not Jesus. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one who has come to save and uh, to seek and save the lost. Now, some of us might be offended by, by this. You may be thinking, servant? I'm not a servant. I want to be honored by others. The problem with this is that this isn't the way that the Bible teaches us to think. The world teaches us that we need to make a name for ourselves and that we are important. We're told that the degrees that we've earned or the the credibility that we've gained has value and that we are to be looked up to and never looked down on. But did you know that being a servant of Christ is not something negative, nor is it something to be ashamed of? Instead, being a servant of Christ is an honor. You see, in the Old Testament, the titles servant of our Lord or servants of God were reserved for a few people, people that were set apart for the service of God. And here you can think of Moses or Joshua, or King David, who are all referred to as servants of God. It was used of men who were set apart by God to represent him to his people and to the world. And in our passage, Jude uses this same phrase, but applies it to Jesus, showing us that Jesus is the Lord, and that we have been given the privilege and honor to serve him. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would have the mind of Christ and that we would happily see ourselves as servants of Christ. We must not forget that we are not our own, that we we have been bought at a price, and that price was the price of Jesus' 
blood. When we fight to make a name for ourselves, we end up sounding like two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, who on one occasion asked Jesus for a place of honor in his glory. And Jesus told them that they shouldn't fight for these great and high positions. And instead he said, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, this Jesus is our great Lord and Master who came to serve us by giving his life on the cross to save us. His gospel invites us to repent of wanting to make a name for ourselves and instead calls us to serve him. What a great Lord that he would take us into consideration and invite us to be his servants. Now we can be tempted to think that being servants of Christ is burdensome and dishonorable, but that's not true. And as we continue reading the second half of verse 1, we not only find our identity as servants, but we also find our identity, uh, we also find that our identity provides comfort. Our identity provides comfort. Jude gives us three comforting truths that are true of every servant of Christ. Three comforting truths that are true of every servant of Christ. The first truth that we find is that all servants of Christ are called by God. The idea behind this call is that God exercises his sovereignty in drawing people to himself for salvation. This is what theologians often refer to as an effectual call. That is, it's God's inner working in a person that inclines him to turn from his sin and to turn to God for salvation. And an example of this is when Jesus once said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.44 Or in Acts 16, where Luke writes that God opened Lydia's heart to respond to to, to Paul's message. This calling is God's love at work in the lives of his people. Because we were once dead in our sins and enslaved to them, God intervened by working in us to draw us to himself so that we would serve him and be part of his family and be in fellowship with him. So this is the first thing that we learn about our calling or about our identity. It is we are called. The second thing that we learn is that Christ's people are loved by God the Father. We're loved by God the Father, and we see that again in verse 1. When God calls his people, it is a call to be loved by God. We don't deserve to be loved by God. We, We really don't. If you know yourself, you know that you fail him every day. We all do. None of us are exempt from that. There hasn't been a day in your life that you haven't sinned against him. And he tells us in his word, that he is holy and that his eyes are too pure to look on evil and he cannot tolerate wrongdoing. 
So how is it that Jude can say that God calls sinful people to himself and that sinful people are called to be loved by God? Well, this is what makes God a God who is unlike any other God that people create for themselves. God chooses to set his love on people who have rejected him. Not because we deserve it, but because God is loving. And his greatest display of love is seen in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to be a ransom for us. So it is through the work of Christ that we are called into a right relationship with God, a relationship where we experience the many facets of God's love. And this is the second comforting truth that we find of all who belong to Christ. The third comforting truth that we find is that God keeps his people. God keeps his people. I remember when I was about five years old, four or five years old, going to the beach with my family. And as a little boy, I remember wanting to just run in and, you know, jump in the water, but I didn't know how to swim. And I remember my, my father warning me, saying, hey, don't run off in there because you don't know how to swim. And if you jump in there, the waves can pull you in and then you're going to end up somewhere in the middle of the ocean and you're probably going to die. So I knew not to enter on my own. My father knew that because of the waves that were tossing back and forth, that my life was in danger and that I could have been hurt or even died. So what my father did was he carried me and he took me inside. And as I experienced the waves going back and forth, I started to panic because I noticed that if he dropped me, my, my feet wouldn't be able to touch the sand. And if they did, I wouldn't be able to breathe. And one of the things that I remember about this uh, occasion is that during this whole situation, during this whole time, my father looked at me and said, don't worry, I got you. You're okay. You're going to be safe. And he carried me and he brought me back out. And in a similar way, this is the idea that we have when Jude tells us that we are kept by God. Being kept for Jesus means that God uses his power on our behalf to protect us and to preserve us in our faith until Christ returns for us. That means that no matter where we find ourselves or what we find ourselves in, in this chaotic and fallen world, we are safe because God is at work keeping us for Christ. If we are in Christ, then nothing can separate us from Him. Our salvation is secure. Not because we're strong, but because God is strong and He uses His power for our good to keep us until the end. First Baptist Church. As a church, we know that we are living in hostile times where the laws are changing where people are constantly exchanging truths for lies. And we may be wondering, will I make it? With everything that's going on, will my faith fail? This passage, along with many others, give us the confidence that God 
not only began a good work in us, but that He is protecting us even now, and He will make sure that we make it till the end. You see, those who belong to God are called, are loved, and kept by Him for Jesus Christ. I pray that these truths encourage us to be salt and light in the world, and that we would strive to be faithful servants to our Lord who has called us, so that others would also come to know Him and experience these blessings in Him. So we just saw three comforting truths of, that are true of all servants of Christ. Now one thing that you'll notice as we spend time in, in Jude is that Jude describes truths in sets of three. Now in verse 2... Jude offers a prayer request to God that Christians would grow and be filled with three blessings. The first blessing that he prays for is mercy. He prays that Christians would grow in this experience of mercy. And the word mercy here is a word that is used to describe the character of God. God's mercy is what he shows when he doesn't give us what we deserve. This is what leads him to be compassionate towards us in Christ, his mercy. Because, as we've already noted, we've all sinned against God and we deserve his judgment. While we deserved his wrath, he hasn't treated us the way that we deserve. He's shown us mercy. God's mercy is always undeserved by us. Always. This mercy is what we have received in Christ. And in Matthew 5, 7, for example, we're told that the merciful will receive mercy. We are able to be merciful only as we grow in our understanding of God's mercy towards us. The more we meditate on God's mercy for us, the more that our hearts will be warm to, the merc- to be merciful towards others who are undeserving. And this pleases the Lord. This is one of the things that Jude prays for Christians, that we would grow in our understanding of the mercy of God so that we too would be merciful. The second blessing that Jude prays for is peace. This blessing is one that deals with our peace with God. And this peace is a result of being forgiven in Christ and being accepted by God the Father. Apart from Christ, there is no peace, no true, lasting peace. Because our consciences will torment us, convincing us that we are sinful and that we deserve to be punished. But when we are in Christ, we are offered free and full pardon for our sins. And as a result, we no longer carry the weight of sin around because God has given us peace. God is the source of peace. And in His Son, we are given the Prince of Peace. It is through Him that Christians are declared righteous by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans 5. So Jude prays that we would grow in our understanding of mercy, that we would grow in our understanding of peace, and he also prays that we would grow in our understanding of the love of God. He mentions the love of God five times in this letter, and it's used of God's love towards his people. Jude's desire is that you, Christian, 
would grow in your understanding of God's love for you. Like the other blessings, this is only possible because of Christ and what he's accomplished for us. So mercy, love, and peace. These are three blessings that are true of every believer. And we are to uh, seek to grow in these things, in these blessings. Christians, is this what comes to mind when you pray? If not, Jude teaches us that we ought to pray for these things so that we would grow in joy, the joy that is offered to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not too long ago, I think it was maybe last year or the year before that, it was popular to post hashtag blessed on social media. Now, how does hashtag mercy or hashtag peace or hashtag love, how is that for a hashtag? If you want to show the world what it means to be blessed, these things will tell the world what it really means to be blessed. Because what it really means to be blessed is not to have a nice car or a nice house or a lot of money. Those aren't true blessings or lasting blessings, according to the Bible. The true blessings that we receive for God are mercy, peace, and love, as we find in this section. So these are things that we ought to pray for so that we would grow in our love for God. What a great call we have received from God. And Jude shows us that our identity in, uh, in, relations to, uh, our identity in relation to Christ, our security that is obtained by Christ, and the blessings that we are given through Christ. So that's our first point. Our second point, is the Christian's charge. The Christian's charge. If the first two verses address who we are, the next two verses show us how we are to live. Verses 3 and 4 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 and 4 are, verses three and four are given so that we would know the reason for the letter. Jude again reminds us of the love that God has for his people and tells us that he had a strong desire to write about the salvation that we share. Jude wanted to write a different letter initially, a letter that had to do with their common salvation or a a salvation that they shared. But something happened. Something happened that changed Um, the content of Jude's letter because Jude found it necessary to write to this set of Christians to contend for the faith because of the threat of false teachers that had come to them. As we saw last week, Jesus warned us that false teachers would be coming. And in Jude, Jude warns us that false teachers have arrived. And here Jude tells us that they're here and we're given the charge to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
This word contend is the word is a word that carries the meaning of agonizing. And it is used of athletes who put themselves under rigorous training as they prepare to compete in Olympic Games. So Jude calls Christians to fight for the faith. But we're told that the fight will not be easy. It is one that requires mental, physical, and emotional energy. Fighting for the faith will require us to give it everything that we've got. Now, what is the faith that Jude is referring to? In the Bible, when we read about faith, it's usually associated with a believer's faith in God. But this isn't what Jude has in mind here. What Jude is saying is that Christians are to give themselves to fighting for the content of the faith. In other words, it's not the who of our faith, but the what of our faith. What we believe in is what must be defended. And there's two ways that we can contend for the faith. The first way that we can contend for the faith is by knowing it, by knowing it. We can't defend the faith if we don't know what the faith is and how it's being attacked. We're told that the faith is shared in common, meaning that it is a set of truths that unites all Christians. And I believe that Jude has in mind here not only the gospel, but also the essential non-negotiables of the faith. There are doctrines or teachings that separate Christians from other religions. And if you read Jude, you'll, have, you'll get an idea of some of these doctrines that Jude thinks are important, which include the Lordship of Jesus Christ, holy living, the security of the Christian's salvation. But it also extends to other essential truths such as a high view of Scripture, the gospel message as the only means by which people can be saved. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It includes also the deity of Christ. Christ being fully God and fully man. Other essentials such as the sinfulness of man. And these are just a few of the things that make up the faith, the essentials. So we contend by the faith, uh, for the faith by knowing what the faith is. But a second way that we can contend for the faith is by sharing it. The second way that we contend for the faith is by sharing it. Once again, in verse 3, we read that the faith that was once and, once and for all delivered to the saints, meaning that there is nothing new to add to it. What we have been entrusted with is what, was, it, is what mu- we must pass on to others. As servants of the king, we must give ourselves to delivering the good news of the gospel and its, and its implications to anyone who will listen. Remembering that it's not how many people respond to the proclamation, but what we do with the message. That is what pleases the Lord. So we're called to contend for the faith by knowing the faith and by sharing the faith. And I want to ask you, if you're visiting us this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we're happy that you're here. I want to ask you, do you find yourself contending with the faith? Meaning, are you rejecting the message of the cross? The message is that 
We are all sinful people, not because God created us that way, but because we have willingly chosen to rebel against God. And if God were to give us what we deserve, we deserve to be separated from him for an eternity. But the faith, the gospel message also tells us that God in his kindness has offered a way for us to be made right with him and forgiven. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived the perfect life on our behalf and then gave that perfect life as a sacrifice for all who would repent of their sins and place their trust in him. This is the message that every person must respond to. And we will only respond in one of two ways. We will either accept it or reject it. There's no middle ground. Today, the Lord offers you this free and wonderful message that is good news for all who would repent and believe. He offers free and full salvation and forgiveness of sins if we cease from contending with the faith and surrender to Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about this, feel free to ask myself or David or whoever you came with, and we'd be more than happy to continue having a conversation with you. Now, Christian, knowing doctrine is not just for the leaders of the church. Knowing sound doctrine is for every Christian to know, for every Christian to love, and for every Christian to cherish. It's a responsibility that all who belong to Christ have been given so that we may be prepared to give a response to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So that we may be able to defend the faith when it is attacked. And one of the ways that you can contend for the faith is by growing in your understanding of not only the gospel, but also by growing in your understanding of those non-negotiables that we just mentioned a few minutes ago. Do this to grow in your love for our great God who has given His Son for you. But also do this so that you can share what you're learning with others. And you can share this with others by meeting up with a younger Christian to teach them the faith that was once and for all delivered to you. But you can also do this by aiming to meet with an older Christian who could pour into you the things that have been entrusted to them so that we would all grow together in our ability to know the truth and to contend for the truth. So we are called to contend for the truth. But the second thing that we're called to do is we're called to beware of threats. Beware of threats. Our text tells us that we must beware of false teachers. Jude tells us that certain people had crept in or snuck in. And these people, as we will see later, are false teachers that we were warned about. Now, these aren't people that are playing, uh, that, are, that, are, that are trying hard not to be noticed. No, these are actually people who are out in, in public who are trying to conceal their true nature. They hide themselves in sheep's clothing, but, in, but they are really wolves, as P.K. Um, helped us see last week. And they can do so because they look like sheep. But in reality, they're not sheep at all. These false teachers, 
had arrived in the time of Jude and are still around today. So it shouldn't surprise us that, that they are in the church at large because Jesus, Peter, and others have warned us that they would be coming. And since they are already here, an important question I think is that, that, we, sh- that we should ask ourselves is, how can we identify them? And Jude gives us three marks of false teachers in this section that will help us know what to look for. And we'll find more marks of false teachers throughout the letter, but we're given at least three in our passage for this morning. The first mark of a false teacher is that false teachers are ungodly. False teachers are ungodly, and we see that there in verse 4. Their ungodliness is not due to their disbelief or unbelief. It's because they don't fear God. These teachers are godless men, as some have described them. And they have no moral compass, so they live however they please, all while claiming to belong to Christ. Now, you may hear these kinds of teachers say things like, I don't like to beat people down. You may have made many mistakes. You may have done wrong. But you know what? God is on your side. God loves you. And God has a wonderful plan for you, regardless of how you live. So this is one of the first marks of a false teacher. They are ungodly. A second mark of a false teacher is one who perverts the grace of God into sensuality. That is, they distort the grace of God, that the grace that God gives to sinners, and they turn it into a license to sin. And this refers specifically to fleshly sins, such as sexual immorality, drunkenness, and other similar sins. These teachers twist God's forgiveness into an open invitation to live however one wants. They don't want to be told not to sin. So... so These kinds of teachers will say things like, sin? All of my sins are covered. This is what Christ died for. He wants me to be happy. Isn't that the purpose of the cross? So we find these two marks of false teachers, that they are ungodly and they pervert or distort the grace of God. And the third mark that we find is that they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude warns us of people who deny Christ, but they don't deny that Jesus is God. Instead, they deny Jesus' lordship. And you see it there in verse 4, where it says that they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do they deny him? Well, it's not with their words, but instead it's with their actions. These teachers don't identify as servants of Christ because they live to serve themselves. Their behavior reveals their heart, and they deny Jesus' lordship practically with their lifestyle. Jude tells us that they have been designated for condemnation, and they have their place in judgment. So the Bible teaches us that if you are a Christian, you can't just have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. You can't just have the blessings of being a Christian, of wanting to be saved, but not the responsibility of walking in holiness and walking in obedience to Jesus. It's both. 
They're both two sides of the same coin. We're called to see Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. But these false teachers deny that with their living. Now, it's not rare to hear of, uh, of popular celebrities or celebrity pastors claiming to follow Jesus or to give thanks to God or shout outs in their award speeches. But we must be aware of those who may say the right things, but whose life don't reflect the teachings of our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that the Bible teaches us that genuine faith will always lead to a transformed lifestyle. Genuine faith will always lead to a transformed lifestyle. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't sin anymore. But what it does mean is that we won't love the sin that we used to love before. We will begin to hate it and we will begin to look more and more like Jesus as the Spirit sanctifies us and makes us to be more like Him. So Jude teaches us that our identity, how we identify ourselves is important. And he tells us that we have been given a charge. Our charge is to contend for the faith. This is something that we are all called to do. And we do it because our Lord Jesus is worthy of it. He has entrusted us with his gospel and has made us participants of his mission. We do it because there are people who belong to him who are still in need of hearing the faith, of hearing the gospel, and Jesus loves them. So we give ourselves to love those whom Jesus loves, and we show our love for Jesus by obeying what he calls us to do. I pray that our joy would be rekindled and that it would be always on our hearts because of what everything that, uh, that Jesus has done for us, that he has given us the privilege of being his servants. Who wouldn't want to be a, a servant of such a great Lord and master who has called us, who has loved us and who keeps us safe? The one who gave his life to save us, to bless us and invite us into his mission of saving the lost is worthy of being lived for and served. We praise God that we have... Um, a relationship with this Christ because He has called us to Himself. He has given us security and He has given us undeserved blessings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You and we acknowledge that You alone are God, that You are our Lord. We pray that You would help us to grow in our understanding of who we are as we consider who you are. And we pray that we would give ourselves to the things that you have called us to do, Lord, particularly contending for the faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness so that we would be speaking the truth in love whenever your truth is attacked. We pray that you would give us wisdom so that we would know how to interact with those who contend against your word so that if it pleases you, Lord, you would grant them forgiveness and repentance so that they too would be saved. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you've given us, and we pray that we would live our lives in light of this great truth. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.